We've had to adjust the monthly budget to accommodate my 580 habit. I'm not ashamed to admit that, but I've tried to convince Mandy, you know, it's, it's ministry. We're supporting ministry here. And one of the reasons we showed you that video today is last week, if you were here, uh, the coffee and just the, the full slate of pastries that we enjoyed, cinnamon rolls and whatever else, that was provided by 580. So if you noticed a difference in anything we threw out there last week, um, it was uh, 580's doing. And part of that was sort of to tease you toward the coffee shop um, this month. If you've never been there, it's on East Randolph, just in, in downtown Enid. And the profits and proceeds from uh, the coffee shop this month are uh, being left to, uh, we get to, Enid and B Church gets to direct those funds toward ministry. Uh, and with our relationship with Monroe School and Polly Maxwell, the principal there, we have decided to uh, let that school in our neighborhood be the recipient of the profits from the, the coffee shop this month. Uh, that's a school that continues to come to us, asking us to get involved in what they're doing there. And we want to take advantage when a public school comes to our church and asks for uh, some assistance. We want to seize that opportunity. And so we've chosen to bless them. Just an under-resourced school right here in our neighborhood, just a couple blocks away. Uh, and so go this month. If you've not tried 580, uh, go down there this month and grab a cup of coffee and a cinnamon roll or something. If you, if you frequent 580, go a little bit more or give a little bit more on top of what you normally uh, pay for your, uh, your latte or whatever, and it's going to go to support uh, a ministry right here in, in our neighborhood. So that's just a plug for 580 uh, today. Also, uh, you know, I like to start with a joke at times, and I worked really hard this week to find a joke. Couldn't really find an appropriate joke, one that just dovetailed perfectly. I had a mentor in ministry, Mark Hitchcock, the pastor at the last church that I helped serve at. And he was really good at just teeing up the sermon every week with a really appropriate joke. And I just started, uh, as I started to spend more time looking for the joke than I did actually preparing for the sermon, I actually got, I abandoned that, that whole track. Uh, so hopefully the sermon itself won't be the joke this morning. But as we, uh, as we get into this, turn to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1, today's lesson is titled The Voice, and last week we began what will be a year-long journey through the gospel of Mark, and as I introduced the book, I highlighted for you at least a couple of things. First, I tried to highlight what this book is. We call it a gospel, but what exactly is a gospel? We talk a lot about the gospel. Is a gospel different from the gospel? Well, we said that the Gospel of Mark is not, contrary to my, what people might say, is not a biography of Jesus. It doesn't give us all the particulars of Jesus' life. Even if you combined all the Gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's still a tremendous amount of information about Jesus we don't know. The bulk of his childhood, his adolescence, his 20s, all of that is basically unaccounted for. So a Gospel is not really a biography. And it's not a series of tales or legends either. This gospel is historical in nature. These events and people and places are, are situated in history. So these aren't morality tales or, or fables. There are just way too many facts here. So what the gospel of Mark is, is it's proclamation. It's good news to be proclaimed, heralded, read, shared. And the proclamation contained in this gospel centers on one incredibly important individual, and that's Jesus Christ. There it is, chapter 1, verse 1. I call it the informal title of the book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. So this book is good news. That's what gospel means. Good news, glad tidings. Good news concerning Jesus Christ. So it's fundamentally about Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what Mark is about. And that's appropriate because the entire Bible is a collection of 66 books whose sole purpose is to point us toward, is to explain, is to herald, and is to exalt Jesus Christ. This is a book that tells us the redemptive plan of God to save a people in his son, Jesus Christ. And that leads us to then the next question. Who is Jesus Christ? He's not just a man whose first name is Jesus and last name is Christ. The name given to him actually marks out who he is. He is Jesus, or Yeshua, read as Joshua in the Old Testament. It's a name meaning the Lord saves. The Lord saves. That's Jesus. And he is Christ. That's a form of the Greek word Christos, which means anointed king or Messiah. So by virtue of his name, Jesus Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah king, who has come to save. And if that isn't enough for you, the end of verse 1 spells it out even more clearly. He is the Son of God. So we have good news being proclaimed about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the anointed Savior, and because we're so used to referring to Jesus in these ways, these, this opening verse doesn't really arrest our hearts and minds maybe the way it should. It wouldn't have arrested our hearts and minds the way it would of a first century listener. And if you remember, the audience of this book would have been first century Christians in Rome, largely Gentiles, people of the Roman Empire who had, who had seen the way in which the Caesars, the emperor kings of Rome, had seen the way that they were exalted as gods. This making a god of the emperors, this had been going on since the first or second century BC. And because of this mentality, even the birthdays of the Caesars would be heralded, heralded with, with what are called gospel announcements, with good news. The entire empire would be told to celebrate the existence of their kings. And this call to celebrate would come by proclamation from Rome. So when Mark says in verse 1 that he's giving good news or glad tidings about this man, Jesus Christ, he, he follows it by saying, this Jesus is more than a man. He's the Son of God. He's very God of very God. He's of the same stuff of God. He shares essence with God. So this opening statement of Mark not only makes much of Jesus, it also speaks to the heart of the Roman Christian who needs desperately to be reassured about who the king of kings really is. The real king is Jesus. And that's the thrust of the first half of the book of Mark. The first half of the book of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, is, is spirit-inspired Mark proclaiming Jesus as authoritative servant king. And all of that connects with why this book is called a gospel not a biography or a legend or a work of history, but a, a proclamation. And one reason we say it's a proclamation is related to the fact that the book's predominant first century audience wouldn't have read it. They would have listened to it. Low literacy rates, no printing technology, meant, meant, meant Mark's writing was most likely heard, not read. It was heard. That's just... Uh, it's a unique genre, the gospel is, in, in the sense that it is 
proclamation. The second detail we highlighted last week was the man who wrote this gospel, John Mark. John Mark's ministry was sort of up and down. In, in Acts 13, John Mark ended up on the bad side of the Apostle Paul. If there's anybody that I wouldn't want to end up on the bad side of, it would be the Apostle Paul, right? John Mark was, but he went on to serve with his cousin Barnabas. There must have been something in John Mark that was admirable. And then the bulk of his ministry was spent as the translator, sort of the scribe or the secretary to the Apostle Peter. And, and what we have in the Gospel of Mark is then most likely the fruit of Mark's ministry with the Apostle Peter. This Gospel is essentially Peter's Gospel recorded by John Mark. So as Peter told of his experience with the life and the ministry of Christ, as he did this throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the ancient world, anyone who would listen, Peter would tell them of Jesus, Mark took note, and that's what we have here in this Gospel. Peter's account of the life and ministry of Christ. And it's consensus opinion that Mark was likely the first gospel account written. And Mark wrote it right around the time of Peter's death, sometime between A.D. 59 and A.D. 64. And as I mentioned, he likely wrote it from Rome. And this is important because that time frame coincides with the, re with the reign of the Roman emperor Nero. Nero. We've talked about this before. Nero was a diabolical figure. He was a madman who, by virtue of his position, thought he was God, and the absolute power he wielded, it found a very wicked expression in the way he treated early Christians. If you know your history, you know that in, in AD 64, a, a fire, a great fire, raged over a week, destroyed about 80% uh, of the city of Rome. So think about back in 2005, the devastation that Hurricane Katrina caused in New Orleans. It's really not worthy to be compared with the damage caused in Rome. But just like with Katrina, when things like that happen, everyone starts looking for someone to blame. Remember how that whole circus went? Well, listen to how R.C. Sproul describes the aftermath of the fire in Rome. He says, many suspected Nero himself had set the fire. But, to deflect suspicion, he chose to blame it on the Christians. Word swept through the city that the fire had been caused by those antisocial, anti-religious fanatics who bore the name of Jesus Christ. So Nero sent his military to round up every Christian they could find. When he arrested the Christians, he clothed them in the skins of wild animals. Then, in a public display of cruelty, he let feral dogs loose against them. Other Christians Nero dipped in pitch or tar, impaled them on stakes, and ignited their bodies, using them to illuminate his garden parties. If that was not enough, other Christians were led into the Colosseum and killed in all manner of ways for the sheer entertainment of the people. So from the center of power of the ancient world, with this rising tide of persecution against Christians, persecution that was fueled by, by Nero, this wild man with a God complex, Mark writes a gospel, a, a proclamation of good news that Jesus Christ is God and that he's the true king. The king who came not to tyrannize the world, but to give his own life to save the world. Which, is, which that gets us to the opening verses of the book. Let's read them together. Mark chapter 1, 
We've studied verse 1 a good bit, but we're going to read it anyway and read down to verse 8. Inspired by the Spirit, Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes uh, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So this scripture passage, it obviously concerns itself with John the Baptist. And in it, we see four major details related to John the Baptist. That John was predicted, that he was presented, that he performed certain task and he preached a certain message. Let's go first with John predicted. We see this in verses 2 and 3. John was a perfectly normal man in that he was just a man. He was, however, a thoroughly unique man in that his life and ministry was foretold in a prophecy that existed 700 years before he was born. That's how Mark starts his gospel, with an Old Testament prophecy. And interestingly, this is the only time we see Mark in this gospel quote the Old Testament. Again, he's writing to a Roman audience. There's no need to go overboard quoting the Old Testament to a bunch of Gentiles. Matthew quotes the Old Testament all over the place because he has a Jewish audience. Mark, not so much. But there was a prophet that was widely known outside of Jewish circles. It was a prophet that even the Gentiles would have known about, and that was the prophet Isaiah. And so that's how Mark sets up his Old Testament quotation as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. What's interesting, though, is that the prophetic words quoted in verse 2 are not the words of Isaiah. (laughs) They're actually closer to the words of Malachi, and so that raises some questions. Did Mark just not know his Old Testament? Did the Holy Spirit not inspire this part of the gospel? Maybe the Bible does contain error. Why in the world are the words of Malachi attributed to Isaiah? What's going on here? Several things. Several reasons for this. I'll mention a couple that make sense to me. One, it was fairly customary when grouping together Old Testament prophecies that were related to the same subject to cite the more known of the prophets. Isaiah was the more known of the two prophets. Thus, he is the one cited. It's a very real possibility that Roman or Gentile Christians would have never heard of Malachi. Thus, it served Mark better to to, to mention Isaiah. Second, Verse 2 is a messy quotation of Malachi. And it's actually got a verse from Exodus or a phrase from Exodus mixed in with it. But verse 3 is an almost verbatim quote from Isaiah chapter 40. So in these two verses, we definitely have a reference from Isaiah and we sort of have a reference from Malachi. So Mark just kind of sticks with saying what he's saying is from Isaiah. But what does it all mean? Why does he start with, with, with these quotations? 
The point of both references is that there is one whose preordained, prophesied job is to prepare the way of the Lord, and that's John the Baptist. And the question then becomes, well, you just said, I I thought this gospel was all about Jesus Christ. Why is it important at the outset of of the gospel for Mark to highlight John the Baptist? Because Mark knows that if Gentiles are to look at the story of King Jesus and see it as authentic, they will expect that there would be some kind of authoritative, credible herald who would announce his arrival. Why? Because that's exactly the way it was in their world. No king ever arrived and said, hey, I'm king, I'm here, exalt me. The king always had a forerunner. The king always had an entourage, some throng that was coming before him to prepare the way and make people ready. Someone who bore the authority to make that kind of introduction. And who would have more authority than someone who was mentioned 700 years before he even showed up? That's some serious validation for John. I mean, do you know today any contemporary person whose life was predicted in the medieval period? You know, 1300s A.D., the time of William Wallace, Geoffrey Chaucer, those guys? No, probably not. You you don't know anybody that was predicted back then. But that's John, a man who was predicted 700 years before he came. Therefore, Mark, just consistent with the Gentile approach to how kings were announced, he goes to the Old Testament in the beginning of his gospel, not to share a prophecy about Jesus, but to share a prophecy about his herald. He wants to validate his herald. Doesn't give us a prophecy about the new king, but gives one about his forerunner, the one who would proclaim his arrival. This would be the kind of official structure that people in the Gentile world would just be very much used to. This would be very natural. So, that is John predicted. Let's look at John presented. We'll look at verse 4 and verse 6. Very simply, in the first part of verse 4, it says, John appeared meaning John was a historical person. And when it says he appeared, he uses that language to connect with the fact that John was a fulfillment of the prophecy that we just talked about. John appeared. Just as God's word said he would, he appeared. And it's interesting, the New Testament often speaks of Christ appearing as well. The Apostle John, in his epistles, we studied those last year, frequently speaks of the appearing of Jesus. He appeared to destroy the works of the the devil. He appeared to take away sin. Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, Christ appeared. Well, John appeared. He appeared to fulfill his appointed task as well. And it's interesting, omitted from Mark's gospel are the many other details of John the Baptist's life. He he leaves out just the wonderful circumstances of John's birth. Luke shares those. Remember Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and all the great things going on with that couple and God giving them a child at an old age. Luke and Matthew also write of John's challenge to the Pharisees. John really came after the religious leaders. Remember, it was him who called them a brood of vipers. Mark leaves all that out. Mark restricts and frames his portrait of John in just a singular way. He's just depicting him as a fulfillment of prophecy, the forerunner, the foreteller of one that would be greater than himself. He's important to Mark, But Mark's burden is to get to Jesus. And we're going to do that next week in verses 9 through 13. But Mark does manage to describe a bit about John's way of life for us. 
tells us how and, and where he appeared. Verse 4 says he's in the wilderness. And then look again at verse 6. He was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, by any stretch of the imagination, John the Baptist was probably a pretty weird-looking guy. You know, even though he's given the title Baptist, uh, you know, he, he's not the first Baptist, right? He's not the first Southern Baptist that ever lived. I mean, some of the Southern Baptists might try to tell you that, but he's not. Just by the virtue of the way he looked, he would never be called as a pastor to one of these stately, you know, First Baptist churches somewhere. He was kind of a wild man. He, he, he wore strange clothing, camel's hair, probably hair he retrieved out of the thicket of bushes all around the wilderness. He weaved it into some sort of material. He girded himself with a, a, a leather belt. If in your mind's eye, just picture one of the Duck Dynasty guys with a robe on. You know, this is, this is John the Baptist. And then a reference to what he ate. Locusts, wild honey. This is actually a kosher diet. There's provision for this in Leviticus chapter 11. And with this description, you probably know there's an intentional connection to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. When you read the narrative of Elijah in 1 Kings, you see the way, the manner of life that John the Baptist lived. Many believe John the Baptist to be the second coming of Elijah. Remember, Elijah didn't die. He got caught up on a chariot of fire to heaven. People thought he'd come back as John the Baptist, which isn't true, but Jesus does, does tell us that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He brought a, min a, a ministry just as needed, just as startling and disruptive to the nation of Israel as Elijah's had been, and Elijah's was pretty extreme. And it's interesting today, whenever Jews gather uh, for, for the Passover Seder, this meal that accompanies the Passover feast, they always leave an empty chair at the table. And it's explained that the empty chair is there for Elijah. They remember the last prophecy of the Old Testament on the last page of the book of Malachi, the promise that before Messiah would come, God would bring Elijah back. Well, you and I know Messiah did come, and he was heralded by one that was as Elijah. It was John the Baptist. He appeared but he didn't just appear. This text tells us he showed up doing something. What was it? John performed. That's our next point in the outline. He performed. John MacArthur writes, In ancient times, the envoy of the arriving king would go before him, rem removing all the obstacles in the path. Sometimes they'd carve a path. Sometimes they'd build a road. Sometimes they'd make a bridge removing the obstacles, and then they would make sure the people were, were ready to receive this new king. In the case of Jesus, we know John the Baptist was preparing the way. How was he preparing the way? It says there, by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was John's preparation. So what's clear is the way to prepare for King Jesus was to deal with your sins. And in, in, in order to deal with your sins, you needed to repent of your sins. And to demonstrate your repentance, you would undergo baptism. Now, it's important to note, the baptism itself didn't bring forgiveness of sin. It only declared that the heart was contrite and repentant. And with those who came to John in that spirit, he would baptize them. This unique feature of John's ministry is why he's labeled the baptizer, 
no one had ever done this sort of thing before. And John's baptism, what it was, was an identification. An identification with John and with forgiveness and with the kingdom that was at hand with the Messiah's arrival. And what's so unique about John's ministry of baptism and preparation is the Jews, they had ceremonial washings, but there was no baptism for the Jews except for what was called proselyte baptism, meaning baptism was for Gentiles. The custom was if a Gentile wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews, he would would baptize himself, he would cleanse himself in a baptistry called a mikvah. And so the point of John's baptizing ministry is more radical than it seems on the surface because water baptism in this day and age was just confined to Gentiles. Therefore, if a Jew came to John in repentance, seeking baptism, that Jew was saying something really, really remarkable. That Jew was saying, I'm no better than a Gentile. I'm no better than a a dog. That's the way Jews often referred to Gentiles, as dogs. I'm no more ready to meet the new king. I'm no more ready for God to ascend to his throne. I'm no more ready for God to establish his kingdom and make me a part of it. I'm no no more ready for any of that than a Gentile. That's a huge admission for the Jews who had been trained pretty much to resent and despise the Gentiles. John is calling the Jews to declare themselves no better than Gentiles. And to mark that admission, they would need to bring forth the, the fruit of that repentance and be subjected to baptism. This was a big step for a Jew. Yet, all of Jerusalem and Judea went out to him. He was attracting crowds, throngs that maybe had never been seen, certainly that would come to that area for ministry. This is a big step for a Jew. But repentance, you know, repentance is always a big step. It's a big step for us today. Every one of us in this room, whether you've had a saving relationship with God for decades or whether you have yet to really know him, the the thing that stands between us and right relationship with God is repentance. It's laying before God the sin we know entangles us calling it what God calls it and turning away from it. That is repentance. Problem is, when we repent, I think we need to spend a little more time diagnosing whether we're repenting out of conviction for sin or just repenting from the consequences of sin. Because there's a vital difference. Feeling bad isn't necessarily repentance. Feeling humiliated or feeling bad about getting caught is not necessarily repentance. What characterizes genuine repentance? Listen to Tim Keller. This is kind of a long quote. Keller says, Repentance out of mere fear is really sorrow for the consequences of sin, sorrow over the danger of sin. It bends the will away from sin, but the heart still clings. Repentance out of conviction however, over mercy is really sorrow over sin. Sorrow over the grievousness of sin. It melts the heart away from sin. It makes the sin itself disgusting to us. So it loses its attractive power over us. 
we must come to a point where we say, this disgusting thing is an affront to the one who died for me, yet I'm continuing to stab him with it. Thus we repent. Repentance is brought to you by the kindness of God. And as you sit there today, the kindness of God may be the thing that's leading you to repentance. Not guilt, not shame necessarily, but God's kindness in wanting to expose you to your sin and and for you to call it what he calls it, to categorize it the way he categorizes it, and then have your mind altered toward it and then turn from it. His Holy Spirit could be doing that in some of you today. You could be being led to repentance by the Spirit and the kindness of God. And in doing that, you then double down and put your faith in God and the forgiveness and the justification that's provided through Christ. Then we have his preaching. His preaching. He performed this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but then he also preached. Verse 7 says, After me, this is what he preached, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the singular message of John the Baptist. He points to Christ. He points to Christ. He never points to himself. He points to Christ. Remember John 3.30? I must decrease. He must increase. That's the spirit. That's the attitude of John the Baptist. Just a model posture for any preacher. Don't point to yourself. Point to Christ. After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. How mighty is he? He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's Kyrios. He's he's God's son. He's the king. He's King Jesus. How far above me is he? He's so much mightier than I that I'm not fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. Which that's the lowest possible job that any servant could have. That was it. That was the bottom. In the ancient world, if you were the if you were the servant who untied your master's sandals, you, you were the bot. You were the scum of the scum of the scum. There's some ancient Hebrew texts that say, a Hebrew slave must not wash the feet of his master nor put his shoes on. That's beneath the dignity of a Hebrew slave. Get a Gentile to do that. Another quote from an ancient text. All services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher with the exception of undoing his shoes. John saying, I'm below the people who do that. I'm not even up to the level of those who would untie his shoes. That's how low I am. That's my position in all of this. All of you are coming out to see me. I'm nothing. Verse 8, why is John saying he's so low? Why is he so different? Why are the two figures, John and Christ, so separated? Because I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's saying, all I can do is stick you in the water. He can indwell you and transform you and give you life. This is the work of salvation. This is the new covenant. It's purification and cleansing and transformation and regeneration and the new birth. John says, I can't do that. Only God does that. Only God gives the Holy Spirit. That's who's coming. The new king. 
He will give you the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit comes salvation and sanctification and, and service and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. With, without the Spirit, we get none of that. Just to conclude, just to summarize these eight verses. Mark begins the gospel with the language of good news. Good news means there's a new king who is God himself, and he's bringing a new kingdom. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. It will actually remove our sin from us. It comes to those who repent. It's the culmination of all past redemptive history, and it's the door to all future glory. The herald has come to announce his arrival, and then the rest is the king's story, which we pick up in verse 9. And just one more thought as I conclude on repentance, because I think it's, it's, very, it's very core and very key to, to what this chapter, what this, this little passage is teaching. And again, I got locked in on some thoughts by Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and I'm just going to read another section of that to you. Again, it's kind of long, so try to follow along with me. Keller says, Rejoicing and repentance must go together. Repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. Rejoicing without repentance is shallow and will only provide passing inspiration instead of deep change. Indeed, it is when we rejoice over Jesus' sacrificial love for us most fully that paradoxically, we are most truly convicted of our sin. When we repent out of the fear of consequences, we are not really sorry for the sin, but sorry for ourselves. Fear-based repentance, which says, I'd better change or God's going to get me, that's really self-pity. In fear-based repentance, we don't learn to hate the sin for itself, and it doesn't lose its attractive power. We learn only to refrain from it for our own sake. But when we rejoice over God's sacrificial suffering love for us, seeing what it cost, us, cost him to save us from sin, we learn to hate the sin for what it is. We see what the sin cost God. What most assures us of God's unconditional love Jesus' costly death is what most convicts us of the evil of sin. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. We so often think of repentance as penalty. No. It's normal. It's necessary. If in your life there is no pattern of repentance, then what you're saying is there is no sin. Are any of you willing to say that? No. No. Lots of repentance doesn't mean we're a mess. It means we hate sin. It means we see what what it cost Christ. And so we repent and enjoy. And enjoy we see where the forgiveness and the, and the cleansing is found 
at the cross. You know, if, if, if Christ was coming as a political king, there would have been a certain way to prepare for his arrival. And many thought that the Messiah would be a political king. If Christ was coming as a military ruler, there would have been a certain way to prepare for his coming. And many, many thought that the Messiah would be a military ruler. John the Baptist says the way to prepare for the Messiah is repentance. Is a baptism that points to the fact that you need forgiveness for your sins. That's the heart attitude that welcomes the king, that celebrates the king. Give me, give me a church of repentant people over a church of seemingly pulled together people any day. Because there are people who know who Jesus is and know what Jesus has done and he is their only hope. He really is their king. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which is rich and full. And I just ask that the Holy Spirit would just fill in all the gaps that I've left open this morning. And God, that um, if there's anybody here that hasn't truly repented, hasn't truly called their sin what you call it, and put their trust and hope and faith in you, that they would do that in this hour that your kindness would lead them to such a place that they would be a broken person but, and, and realize that wholeness isn't come, doesn't come with them pulling themselves together, but comes with you putting them back together. I thank you that you've done that for me and will continue to do that for me. Give me a heart of repentance and faith. God, we, we thank you for this time. I thank you for this people and this place. It's in Christ's name we pray.